You're listening to Wealth Tech on Deck, a podcast about the future of wealth management technology, brought to you by Life Yield. Here's your host, Jack Sherry. Hello, all. Thanks for joining us for this very special edition of Wealth Tech on Deck. We've begun to record a new companion series of podcasts we're calling Legends of Wealth Tech. If you love our business, and especially if you love the history and the people who have been the pioneers in our industry, these are memorable podcasts, the Wealth Tech on Deck Legends, that go along with the 100 or so podcast episodes we've recorded over the past two years. Today's show is our third Legends recording. And as we've done with our first two Legends podcasts, we're focused on people and programs that changed our business for the better over the course of many years. Our first Legends conversation was with Lori Hardwick, Cheryl Nash, and Noreen Beeman, who were among the first women to achieve CEO titles in our industry. Their podcast quickly became one of our most popular shows. Uh, we then recorded John Thiel, Rich Anisar, and John Connors, who shared their seminal work around a longstanding and highly successful program called Total Merrill. In that episode, we discussed how Total Merrill changed how all advisors and firms do business. Today, we'll have a conversation with two longtime friends and colleagues who are at the beginning of a sea change in how advisors work with clients. Len Reinhardt and Jim Seifert co-founded Lockwood Advisors in 1996. Lockwood was the first investment advisory firm to provide a turnkey investment consulting platform independent broker-dealers, consultants, investment advisors, and financial planners. They were early-stage developers and promoters of this newfangled way of doing business called managed accounts or managed money, now referred to as advisory. They were among the first folks who came up with the idea of charging an advisory fee rather than a commission. In 2003, Len and Jim and Lockwood joined forces with Pershing to form one of the industry's largest providers of managed account solutions to financial organizations and registered investment advisors. For a discussion today, they're going to tell us about how it all got started. They will also share their perspective on where managed money is today, where they see it headed. Len and Jim, thanks for leaving the golf course in your favorite surfing spot to join us on this edition of Wealth Tech on Deck. Welcome. Good to see you. Thanks, Jack. So Len, before we get into what you and Jim and so many colleagues did in creating Lockwood, please give us a background on your career and what led to you heading up the largest money business when you were the head of the consulting group at Smith Barney. Let's start there and then Jim, give your backstory and then we'll get into Lockwood, how it got started, how you guys made it happen. I'll date myself. I graduated from University of Rhode Island in 1977. Got highly recruited by uh, GE for their financial management trading program. My father said that's the best thing you could do. He worked for AT&T all of his life. I was there nine months, hated it, responded to an ad in the Wall Street Journal and joined EF Hutton as an analyst. And the job I got there was a little different than I thought. There were only six people in the division. It was consulting services division. And it was a group of basically three senior brokers who were consulting to large pension plans. And so I was the research department. They were starting to get competition from the SEIs and the Callens, and so they say, we need some research. So I was the research guy, and that's how I get into that. And this was when modern portfolio theory was truly modern. It had just come out. A risk-return graph is something Jim and I worked on, literally with rulers and on graph paper, trying to come up with <laughs> risk-return graphs. So this goes way back. I'm dating myself. But Jim Lockwood... Uh, you talked about fee-based business. This was 77 and 74, they changed the rules and they said institutional commissions could now be negotiated. And Jim Seifert, who was a fabulously successful broker all his life, 
said, uh, you know, the best advice I ever gave people was not to sell. And I didn't get paid for that advice. I only got paid if I told him to sell. So he had the concept, he said, if you can negotiate commissions, let's negotiate them to zero and charge a fee. And that was the beginning of the managed account industry. And we started out with very small accounts, $100,000 accounts for a 3% fee. And we'd even dip under that. We had $25,000 accounts in there. But that was the beginning of the fee-based concept of managed money. That's great. Jim, how did you get started? Sounds like you're part of this story. Yeah, I'm a little different than Len. Mine, more luck and a few events, I think, that may have shaped me. You know, in my career, the luck part was Len hiring me. I was not heavily recruited out of college. Graduated from Mount St. Mary's in 1980, Mount St. Mary's University. In 1980, with a major in track and field. <laughs> and I'm... And a minor in finance and literally I was cutting lawns, painting houses. And my dad, who was a dentist, took me to the Asbury Park on the Jersey Shore and pointed to New York City and said, you're obviously not going to be a dentist, cutting lawns, painting houses and whatever else you're doing. Probably not a long term viable prospect, given your spending policies. So, you know, with luck again, Len hires me. And I think what was fortunate about the launch, if you will, is that, you know, like uh, Cheryl Nash and Noreen Beeman, who you've two fine, amazing individuals that you interviewed here recently, you know, we all started like Len did too, way, way in the plumbing, if you will. So I was a performance measurement person and that's, you know, going through bank statements and doing a lot of things by hand. And I think that was a major advantage because once you incrementally learn that, then you learn the next thing. And you begin to get comfortable with products. And I was part of the team that Len spearheaded and Len actually drove the whole thing. Very small team of us that created under Len's leadership that first managed to count rap fee using independent money managers. It was him. So I'm part of that team. And then going forward, Len gave me the green light to go and start selling. So I moved down to Atlanta in 1987 and back then, probably maybe not so much now, but back then the advisor put you in front of the investor. So what that meant is that I would sit in 10 prospect meetings a day. And the advantage to that is that you, hey, you know, you learn how to sell, but you also learn what's wrong with the, what you're selling. I mean, right down to the paperwork, you know, Len and, Len and I redid our paper. You'd be like, why am I asking these stupid questions about a scale of one to 10? How do you feel about really? So those sort of learning over 16 years, by the way, before we launched Lockwood was very, very, very helpful. And then one event that sort of shaped me personally, lots of them, but one. So in 87, October 87, in one month, the market goes down 39%. E.F. Hutton at the time, Len and I are working there, goes out of business and my father dies. So I'm down in Atlanta and I'm 27 years old. I'm like, you know, it's, it's me and me and me and me and me. And I think that was a, another floorboard, if you will, that kind of stuck and helped me uh, move forward. That's a great sort of backstory for both of you. Before we get into the Lockwood story, which is fascinating all by itself and we have lots, a lot of ground to cover, talk about as Hutton becomes, and I forget the exact sequence, but Smith Barney and 
later Morgan Stanley, and there's a bunch of different names that we all live through and know. You guys live through it for sure. Talk a little bit about that because Consulting Group became the place, the thing, before you guys started Lockwood Advisors. So talk a little bit about that evolution. I know Jim was right there side by side as you were building that out. Sure. The unusual part about Consulting Services, which became the Consulting Group, was we were sitting inside a brokerage firm that was a commission-based business. No one understood what we did. Over the years, when you found out our business, we kept merging, 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 or getting bought. And every time we were bought, they'd look at this group and they'd, it was getting bigger by this point. And they're going, Jesus, these guys generate a ton of revenue and they have no lawsuits. But nobody knew what we were doing. No one understood what this fee-based business was. Yep. In yep. fact, for the 18 years I was at the Wirehouses, consulting group had 16 different bosses due to the mergers, acquisitions, and then the changing you know, heads at the different firms. No one yeah, really yeah. understood us. And it was finally when we were at Smith Barney, I was working for an individual and Jamie said, you got to manage the guy. And basically the guy said, he's unmanageable. And Jamie said, okay, he's going to work for me directly. So for 18 months, I worked for Jamie Diamond directly, which was an experience. He's one of the yeah, brightest yeah. guys I've ever seen with numbers in my life. And he started to understand what we were doing. What year is that, Len? When, when, when was that taking place? Just give so me. that was like 94. Okay, gotcha. Yeah, and at the, about that same time, and you may remember this guy's name, I had a friend at uh, Fidelity. He was one of the, I think, four or five presidents named Paul Hondros. Sure, And sure. Paul, we were talking and he said, you got to come down and spend a day and a half with me down here and see what we're doing with this independent advisor marketplace. And I did that. And I said, wow, this is a whole different world they're dealing with. You know, we're talking, we are dealing with brokers and everything, and they're all out there with independent advisors. And at that time, I realized this business was getting big, but it could be much bigger if we could just expand who we were selling to. So we developed a business plan and took it to Jamie and said, look, we should really be removed from the brokerage firm that doesn't really understand what we're doing anyway put us a separate company reporting to the brokerage firm is fine. And we'll start selling to insurance companies, CPA firms, you know, the whole world of this, you know, beginnings of this independent advisory marketplace. And Jamie actually liked it. But when it got back into the executive management of Smith Barney, it was a no-go. They thought it'd be too disruptive. And it was then in 96 when I just fell in love with that idea our brokers were saying, hey, I'm, you know, it used to be I'm up against Merrill Lynch. What should I do? Now they're saying I'm up against some CPA. What should I do? And that's why I said, okay, we got to try this. So I left, resigned, and was able to find uh, with Jim's help. He joined me within about a week. I made yeah. it. Yeah. yeah, he quit. Yeah. There was no money, no compensation. Uh, perfect employee. <laughs> uh, so, kind of knew what he was doing. Yeah. So we went out and we found some investors, some really cool investors, two individuals, and got the funding to start Lockwood. That was a transition. We did leave on the same day. We had a phone call with Jamie. He was trying to convince us to stay. And Len said, he's on the phone. And Jamie says, well, you know, you guys signed a non-compete. Len's comeback was, we never did. We never sent them back. Len was <laughs> like, can we, can we move this? Len, you correct me if I'm wrong, but you said, can, can we move this along? I've got one of my kids has a baseball game. 
And he said, is Seaford going with you? And I said, yeah, I'm going. So that ended <laughs> that so great, nicely. But the next day, Len, our stuff was down in the lobby of that yeah. bank. It's a pile of our stuff in the bank lobby. Yeah. <laughs> right. The boxes like, get out of here. Yeah. The boxes. <laughs> Can't make that up. <laughs> so, Jim, you've told me this story. As I recall, at least uh, I'm probably going to botch this a bit, but you guys get some office space. You're in some godforsaken office park. I, I think it was in Delaware. Philly. Philly. Okay. Tell the story about how you started using those boxes to hold up uh, doors that were your desks. Well, Len had the idea and a brilliant one. Let's hold out in our lawyer's offices in, in Philly, you know, just in case we get any, you know, feedback, negative feedback we need to respond to. So Len, commas could be always first day, we're at one desk, one office, Len's across from me and he looks at me straight in the face and he grabs this little pad of paper and goes, okay, we need to figure out what to do first day. So number one thing we need to do is figure out who's going to buy us lunch. <laughs> that's the way, that's the way he was. That's the way he is. And we just clicked along. So talk a little bit more and then Len pick it up. But Jim, talk a little bit more. What, what were those first days like? I mean, you, you jumped out with no compensation and maybe no clue where this thing was headed. And you, you thought it was a pretty good idea. So what, what were those early days like? After you figured out who was going to buy lunch, I'm sure there was no one there to buy you lunch. What happened then? Well, I think, you know, I, I remember, and Len, you chime in here, obviously. I, I remember we sort of split up and you made cold calls, Jack. Yeah, yeah. So... I made uh, cold calls to my contacts from when I was down in Atlanta. So I, I got a hold of Charlie Brady, the founder of Invesco, told him verbally what was going on. And he said, I want you to meet with me in New York City, talk more about it. And this is just an example of many. And Len was doing the same thing. And I get in my little Volkswagen and drive to somewhere in New York City, sit down with, you know, one of the kingpins of the of managed money, Charlie Brady, founder of Invesco. And he says, I'm going to put you guys in front of Chuck Schwab. And he did. I mean, we just divvied up. Here's what we're going to do today. And sometimes we went in separate offices and just made cold calls. And Len was working on, you know, how are we going to get basis points for clearing, which was like, what? Everybody didn't understand what we were talking about. You know, so Len, you know, took that route maybe. And I took others and we just started, started going. So Len, who are you cold calling and who are some of your early folks you reached out to? In all my changes of management, eventually they said, you have to have an office in New York. And they put me in an office in New York with a bunch of people. One of them, you know, we shared a secretary, was an investment banker who was on his way out. He was working on one last deal for the firm, but then he was moving on. And that individual would hear my conversations about what, you know, we were doing. And he came in one day, took me to lunch and said, I got some ideas for you. And he's the one who actually then introduced us to Tony O'Reilly, who was chairman of Heinz Corporation, and his brother-in-law, Peter Galandris, of the Greek shipping family. And then we hit it off with them. They became our investors in the business, and uh, they were great, absolutely great investors. You know, they didn't really understand the business that well. They liked the concept, what we were trying to do, and they were willing uh, to take the risk. And we learned a tremendous amount from them on how to do business so that I still use when I've invested in other startups. I still use a lot of the stuff I learned from them. 
So talk a little bit about those first months, years that till you became real. We'll talk about becoming real. I'd love a story you guys have shared with me. Save that for a moment. What happened? How did you get, you ended up getting significant momentum, but what was that like, Jim? How did you kind of get it going? And what were some of the milestones or some of the achievements as you went along? Well, I think one of the things we didn't waste any time on was selling. At the end of the day, we had a pretty tight approach in the beginning. So what I mean by that is, what's the conversation? What's the elevator pitch for what we're trying to do here? So we very quickly got a, a number of money managers said, you know, you guys put us in the business. I've known you for years and signing contracts. So you had this stable of, of managers. So that's number one, I guess. If you would, Jim, why don't you share some names just to give some context for our younger audience members? Sure. So, you know, Oppenheimer Capital, I obviously mentioned Invesco, along the way, Madison on the fixed income side, Lazard jumped on early. So these were by 20, 30, 40 managers right away. These were back to the, you know, relationship days where, you know, kind of our name and what we did, you know, in the past meant a lot. And in fact, that's what Tony O'Reilly Sr. said when he gave us the 20 million bucks to, for the startup. He said he was going to lunch. We had a meeting. He's about to go to lunch. He goes, I never read your business plan. <laughs> I've been following you guys, you know, Len's reputation, me, you know, doing my thing with Len. And you've got $20 million and I've got to go off to meet Nelson Mandela right now. So I got to go. And good luck. <laughs> Talk to you later. That's, that's how it happened. Yeah, yeah. So those early days were just like that. Let's let's get the stable of managers. Let's start selling. And the sale was these independent advisors didn't have access to the menu. We didn't have to right off the bat get all fancy with a lot of different things. We had to get fancy with taking blocks of money that were in mutual fund accounts and putting them into separately managed accounts for the tax benefit purposes of that particular vehicle. So that's what I remember is the early, early, early go get some revenue days. Sure. I'm sure. sure Lynn can chime in and add to that. So, Len, I got a question for you, but I just want to set the stage here a little bit. Len is not pounding his chest here, but I will. Not literally. But Len was at this point when he was at uh, Consulting Services, later Consulting Group, it was called at Smith Barney, the clear leader in managed money, which was emerging. It was, it, was, it was getting hot. So by the time he went off to become independent, I remember reading the articles like, oh, this guy's crazy. Is that, that really going to work? So it was crazy and it worked, it both. And so it wasn't so crazy, obviously. But talk a little bit because you needed to have people, not just you guys selling them, but them selling to their clients. Talk a little bit about, and then I love the story at a certain point where you guys were, growing and things were working out. And then you looked at Jim and shared a, an observation at a certain point. But please talk about what that was like to build up and get advisors and later firms that were signing on to what you were doing. Yeah, I think, you know, we started out with the industry and the people we knew. We went after brokers and we actually created a broker dealer, hired some guys to run it from the industry, friends of ours. So we had our own broker dealer. It was very hard finding any firm that would clear for fees rather than commissions, but we finally found a smaller clearing firm to do that. And we went after brokers and that was like it is today. It's tough. They, you know, they liked what we were doing, but you know, what about you guys are brand new? Do you really have this stuff? The software didn't really work, but yet it's coming. You know, you're dealing with all that. And then one day somebody called up and said, hey, 
I've been reading what you're doing, investment news and the rags, and uh, I'm going to be in Philadelphia. I'd like to talk to you. So he comes in and, and it's an RIA. And he does his, uh, we do our dog and pony show for him. And at the end of the meeting. By the way, Len, if I could interrupt, RAA, people didn't know how to spell RAA back then, right? I mean, this is a kind of a new, why don't you explain that a little bit? Okay, he was a certified financial planner who became an advisor. And he heard about what we were doing and how we had sort of developed a specialty for having managers who could run money after tax. And so we were putting that in place. He heard about that. So he comes in, he listened to our dog and pony show. And he goes, okay, I want to open an account. And we're like, what do you mean you want to open up an account? You know, we're used to recruiting and clandestine meetings on, you know, three-day weekends and all this crap to open up. And he's saying, just give me the paperwork. I'm going to see a client in Philadelphia. I'm going to have him sign it. And I remember Jim and I go, oh, my God, we're in the wrong business. You know, we shouldn't be recruiting brokers. We should be going after these advisors. So that was, you know, you say sort of the ups and downs when you do something like this. You know, sure, we were sure. learning how hard it was to recruit brokers and we didn't have money we could give them. You know, so, you, you know, and all of a sudden here's a guy, he, he spends an hour and a half with us and is ready to open an account. So we really changed the way we were starting to do, you know, targeting who we were targeting and switched to these independent advisors who it was so much easier to do business with. You didn't get big chunks of money at all at once, but if you gained their confidence, you got more and more of their book of business. So that was one of the big sort of things, you know, we learned was you have to keep adapting to what's in yep, front of yep. you and the, and the feedback you get. And you have to stay focused because in those early days, everybody's coming to us. Why don't you do this? You should do this, too. You should do that. And we'd sit down and say, we're not doing anything but this. We can't take all these other things on. We got to do one thing exceedingly well. And that became running after, you know, people who wanted, had a big chunk, which is the high net worth of taxable money. We could manage it, get it managed more efficiently than they were doing now. You know, so we sort of become to the mass affluent, like the family office that the really wealthy people had with accountants and tax people and everything else doing the business. We could, we could enter, supply that to the mass affluent. So, Jim, talk a little bit about, because you're on the front lines, obviously, with, with Len on, on all this stuff. Talk about how the momentum picked up, because you're talking RAs. And by the way, no one talked about RAs back then. Today, it's a fundamental part of the business. But back then, it was sort of a, wasn't a big part of the business. It was wirehouses and regional firms and what have you. And you guys kind of broke that new ground. So talk about how you emerged and that ultimately became, got to the point, we'll talk about Pershing buying Lockwood in a little bit, but leading up to that, because you generated significant momentum, you really picked up and got attention across the board. Yeah, that's, thanks for that question. That's a good one. And it just kind of popped in my head just now what the answer would be to that. So Len mentioned the one advisor at a time. Next thing you'll get a you get an advisor that had a book of business. We'd literally evaluate every single client, what a transition would look like, and offer to fly there and actually fill out their paperwork. You're sort of knuckle dragging your way through to get to momentum. So then once we got a number of, I remember this, blend like it was yesterday. We had a number of advisors that were beginning to pick up the pace and putting their every next new account with us. And we decided, and we did it at the Desmond Hotel, let's jam them all into a room and just have them talk to each other. And then the frenzy began. 
when you get advisors, the same is true today. It's just on a much larger scale. When you get advisors, if you're doing the right thing for the client and you're being, you're being, you know, as honest and transparent as possible, then you start opening up the kimono a little bit and bringing them in and said, help us. And they love to talk to each other. We came up with the, you know, this debate, your awards, your this, your that. And next thing you knew, we had, we marched our way onto towards, uh, you know, training with hundreds and hundreds of advisors at a time. But there was no silver bullet answer to it. It was just getting up early and just doing the heavy lifting every single day. Wish there was some some magic to it, but there's not. So, Len, talk a little bit about that, if you would, because for I'm thinking of our younger members of the audience. As far as they know, the business was always done as fee based managed money type business, and it wasn't. You guys are you're in the mid '90s, I think. I'm assuming in terms of where we are on that. I forget when you guys uh, sold to Pershing. I want to hear about that too. But basically, you were creating an industry. Is that fair to say, Len? Yeah, it was, it was something, the fee-based concept, as I said, most the people we worked for didn't understand our business. It was so different than the commission business. But all of a sudden, it was extremely profitable. We didn't have lawsuits. And so, you know, our management started to feed us, you know, meaning it wasn't hard. We were growing to a 25% a year. So, you know, it was easier for us to get funding from the mother companies we were working for at any given time. So that really became the key. As And then, like just like when all the fast food restaurants are on the same street, they all do more business. The same thing happened. As all the other firms were watching this, said, we got to be in the fee-based business. You know, we were thinking, oh, that stinks. It's going to be awful. Well, now we got to compete with all these people. Actually, that's when the business just exploded. When everybody else condoned what we were doing, you know, that's when our management would say, okay, we're going to give you twice as much money as we gave you last year. And we had to explain, you don't, you don't understand, everything in managed money is a year delayed. You know, yeah, we can add more salespeople, but it's going to take us a year to get them up to speed before they bring in accounts and advisors. So it's a very slow process in managed money, unlike doing a hot deal in the commission business. You know, that takes a long time. I remember at one point we were owned by American Express and the CEO was Jonathan Lennon. And he got me up there and I was actually helping him with his own personal assets. And we were starting to manage it. And he said, OK, well, this is, is so phenomenal. Let's raise your budget two or three times. And I kept saying, you're going to be disappointed in the first year. Yeah, we're mm-hmm. going to do 25 percent this year if you give us that or not. Now, if you give us that year two after that, the three, you're going to see that accelerate from 25 to 30, maybe even 40 percent. But it's good. You're going to be there's no immediate reaction to more money for us. And that was a difficult thing for people to get. So you made it happen. You guys are now growing and 25 percent sounds pretty, pretty good clip to me. How did that result in Pershing? As I recall, you, I think there was a bit of an auction that went on. Yeah, we were talking about the brokerage firm. Okay, then we do Lockwood. And for five years, we get up to, I think, 11, 12 billion. And I think, you know, one of the things I remember was, you know, did we make it? And it was really about a billion dollars when we were independent, where we said, yeah, hey, we're for real. Yeah, it doesn't sound like a lot of money now, but I'll never forget Jamie Dunn. We did a little thing in one of the rags thanking the advisors for giving us this money. And Jamie Diamond tore it out, sent it to me with a congratulatory note. 
And so that's when I said, hey, I think we made it. Yeah. But then we, yeah. we continued to grow the business. And what we did was, and, and our investors were very good. They were never that, you know, they wanted the business to be profitable, but we were a growth business. So we basically ran it as broke, break even. Anytime we had money, we hired more salespeople and more technology. And we yep. did that yep. for five years. And then what you're talking about, what happened was, okay, now the industry is starting to see, hey, this after-tax management is really something. And so all of a sudden, uh, one bank came to us and said, hey, we're going to get into this business. We can either buy you or develop our own. So we hired an investment banker at that point and ended up with three people, three big banks bidding on us. And you know the magnitude of these banks were such that the do an acquisition of us, they didn't even have to go to the board. We were barely a, maybe a footnote in their annual report. So we were able to negotiate a deal that was much better than what the, our financials deserved, to put it mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that way. So there was a huge premium for the bank to get into the business quickly rather than spending years trying to develop what we were already doing. So we jumped on that, and that was Bank of New York, and great management people. And then they came to me. We were only there like three months. We were still using a small clearing firm. We were about to convert it to Bank of New York's clearing, which was also small at the time. And a CEO of Bank of New York called me up and he said, hey, when we're thinking of buying Pershing, but we don't really know much about the brokerage business. Can you come up and tell us, talk to us about the brokerage business? You know, and I was like a, a tiny kid in a candy store. Wait a minute, you're going to buy the biggest independent broker dealer in the country supplying all these other firms. And, you know, we could market to that. So, you know, I think I said, hey, this is the greatest deal in the world. It was the greatest deal for Jim and I. I'm not sure it was for them. They bought Pershing. They they bought Pershing. they jumped in the boat. Yeah, they bought Pershing. And then we went to management and said, look, the person we're working for at Bank of New York is awesome, but we should really be part of Pershing. So then we flipped over and became part of Pershing. And then the, the growth was less incredible at that point. So, Jim, talk about that growth. Is sort of the, the cherry on top as you guys built this thing from nothing to something. I, your earlier comment, Jamie Dimon writing you a note by your billion dollars, six, first billion dollars. I, I've always found the first billion is the toughest billion. But, Jim, talk a little bit about, if you would, about you guys enjoyed explosive growth as you connected with Pershing. May I talk a little bit about that? So keep in mind, that's the largest custodian, independent custodian like on the planet. So the money's already there. So it's sitting there. So part of the challenge Len and I had was, you know, oh, we got to get people to change custodians. It's all new paperwork. And you can walk into Pershing and say, oh, my goodness, it's all sitting right here. All the broker dealers and Len and I can rattle them all off. All the big players are there. And they have an army of relationship managers that could get a piece of the action by offering us part of their bonus pool. I mean, let's face it, the annuity stream behind a managed account is far greater than anything else they had in their toolkit. So suddenly we are getting calls. Can you be here? Can you do this? Can you be, you know, we're the subject matter experts and you're closing very, very large deals where you're literally transferring accounts, which by the way, 
did not require people to sign paperwork. So we figured out ways to assume, you know, the statement of objectives, what we, we had to do to get the money over and just you take them over in, bit, in huge tranches. So we were kids in the candy store just trying to hang on to the fun house as we were growing like crazy. I mean, that's just the way it went. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Our biggest problem became we couldn't handle the growth and we had an earn out <laughs> deal that was based on profits. So we didn't want to spend that much more. Yeah. You know, so we had to go back to Bank of New York and say, look, the deal we had, we can do it, but we can't take all the business that Pershing can give us. So we negotiated, basically got rid of that as a settlement where they could now fund us and we could try to keep up with the growth that Pershing was showing us, uh, which was still difficult. It was still hard. So one, one thing to kind of correct here, because Len always says, we, 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 it was him. <laughs> you know, he never gives himself enough credit. So all of these milestones, first rap fee, you know, products, it was Len. It was nobody else. We were this small little team of, you know, whatever you want to dub us that supported whatever came out of his mouth, you know, doing the earn outs, you know, selling, you know, selling to Bank of New York, you know, the investment bankers, no offense to them. Len was the investment banker while he was doing his day job. So it's just a fact. But he'll never, yep. Yep. You'll never hear it from him. Yeah, I, I hear you. So uh, Len and Jim, what are you guys most proud of? We could talk about the end stories. These guys sailed off into the sunset. Lockwood is a key player. The rest of the world copy them. We don't need to. Everybody knows the rest of the story, so to speak. What are you most proud of, Len? Uh, the team we built. It was a team that started to be built at you know brokerage firms. So a number of them joined us, Jim included. And Jim was the best hire I ever made. And I'll tell you that story since he was talking about me. You know, so I'm <laughs> brand new at EF Hutton. I've been there 18 months and I asked for another person that gets approved. Lady calls me up on Friday and says, I got the perfect guy for you. And I said, fine. You know, have him come in Monday and I'll talk to him. He goes, no, we need to hire him today. I said, well, I haven't even met him. She goes, we really need to hire him today. I said, why do we need to hire him today? She goes, because there's this big Wall Street marathon run. I forget what it was, a 5K or 10K or something. Down here, she goes, we've lost to Merrill Lynch like 12 straight years. This guy's a world-class runner. <laughs> and so I, I didn't said, fine, know the story. fine, we hired Jim. And you, you, you beat everybody by like 10 minutes or more. And he had a weighted intersections because he wasn't sure which way to turn. And that's the best hire I ever made. And I never even met him. <laughs> that is, I have not heard that one. Yeah, that's pretty true. <laughs> yes. Go, go with what you got. Yep. But you said what I'm most proud of. It really was the team of people. Because the great thing about the team of people and Jim and I was people knew their strengths and weaknesses. And we had a lawyer, John Lohr, and everybody stayed in their lane. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. we, we'd make a decision, you know, about what we were going to do. And everybody went off and executed. You know, and, and that's rare. And that's, you know, it was a something, there was no infighting, no backbiting, no, you know, everybody knew what their channel was. I didn't try to tell Jim to do what he was going to do. He didn't try to tell me to do what I was doing or John Lohr, David Coy, all these people. Yeah, they, they just did it. They just executed. 
How about you, Jim? What, what are you most proud of for this whole experience? A thousand percent echo what Len just said. Maybe one other little tidbit is that the name Lockwood is still alive and well. Yeah. yeah. That's pretty cool. Yeah. I want to explain that to our audience. Some people would, well, who's, what's a Lockwood? Is it a thing? Well, that's a person. And we probably don't give enough credit to Jim for mentoring, mentoring to both of us. But there is a, there is a gentleman that would put you out there and size you up and then say, okay, I mean, he's ready to go. So this, this gentleman, Jim Lockwood was, was really one special individual. And, you know, through, through the passage of time, you know, the bank of New York uh, kept the brand and kept his name. So there's somebody that maybe the industry should, you know, he's passed on obviously, or maybe not obviously, but he has maybe do a more study on this gentleman because he was, he was one special individual for sure. Gotcha. So guys, as we look to to wrap up here, you're still students of the business, even though you're both retired and not as active as you once were. But what's your observation on where it is today, where it's gone? Any advice for future leaders? Well, I'd love to get your thoughts on uh, where, where, where we're going. Yeah, as I've said before, in this business, it's a slow process to make major changes. And we've seen the change from fees, from transactions to fees, to manage money, to bringing you know, financial planning into manage money to move away from the risk-based questionnaire to a true sort of goals and objectives through financial planning. And I think the last piece that's missing is we've known for 40 some years, the biggest hurdle to investing is taxes. But taxes, you know, when you were at a brokerage firm where it was taboo to give tax advice. And now with firms like yours, you're starting to see taxes become front and center, you know, in the investment process. And and that's the last key component, I think, of really creating a family office for everyone. You know, not just the billionaires who can afford to have their own staff of people doing everything for them. But it's doing that. And as far as the direction in the future, I think you're going to continue to see it move to a more outcome-based process where the investing piece and the intricacies of that are really buried far back in the process. You know, so that was when we started in this business, it was the investment stuff. It was absolutely upfront. And now I think you're moving to something where people can understand it, where what are you really trying to achieve? What's your goals? Okay, Mm -hmm. let's look at this. Let's look at your taxes. Let's look at everything. And let's come up with a, a, um, a plan to do that. And then given that, we'll invest it to give us the highest probability of achieving that. That's great. How about you, Jim? Thanks, Jack. My answer is going to be totally different than Len's. Because Len talked about talent. I was um, very proud to have, you know, developed Investment Institute on campus to help young people hopefully get into our space, if you will. And I still do a lot of mentoring for these individuals weekly. And what I've been telling them is the following. If everyone looks at LinkedIn, if you looked at LinkedIn, call it a year and a half ago, congratulations to so-and-so, just started a new position, happy to be blah, 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 starting at blah, blah, blah. That was a momentous shift. So it's got the COVID, post-COVID, COVID hangover, whatever you want to call it, that happened. 
Well, guess what? You're not seeing that so much anymore. So a lot of these new positions, new players, the chess board got shuffled. People are in different slots. Having said that, what's not being talked about is that now people are being laid off. Truth. So and it's not just the rank and file. You're seeing major management shifts of people that have been in this business a long, long time being let go. So my advice for that younger crowd, the up and coming crowd, is that there is an opportunity here. It's right in front of their faces that won't last. And Len, I'd love you to comment on this. It's not going to it's a it's a trend. It may go on for a little while. It's not going to go on forever. Where if you stick your nose out there, you may get be able to see the chess game a little bit better. But you've got to take a risk and go do it. And I don't think you can do it by being remote. I think you got to do it by showing up and asking and sticking your nose into things and, and raising your hand for things that may be uncomfortable. Lynn, anything to add there? Yeah, I mean, I agree with that. It's you got to be willing to take the risk. You know, when Jim and I did Lockwood, I had four kids. He had three kids. Mine are gearing up, you know, high school, middle school, getting ready for college. And, you know, you, you were making a very nice income and you have to have the support. And I'll never forget my wife said to me, I, she goes, I could tell you never really enjoyed vacations. Your mind was always someplace else. And in the last couple of years when I was working for the big firm, she said, you're starting to plan the vacations now. She goes, you, you don't like it as much. You know, so do it. We'll take the risk. We can always live off of less. We can figure it out. Yeah, so you had to have that support also to say, um, yeah, your whole family situation. Okay, this this could change us dramatically the wrong way if it doesn't go well. But then I tell you what, when it starts to go well, I hated to see Fridays come. <laughs> I hated weekends. Yeah, it was so exciting. I just wanted to keep it sure. continued. And, and that sure. was infectious. I'd go in, you know, stop in Saturday just to do something. And Jim would be there and there'd be 10 other people you know, yep, working yep. and no one asked them to do it. You know, it became an infectious thing when it starts really humming. It's so exciting. So I'll weigh in with my observation of Lockwood back in the day is the period that Len's describing. I was jealous. I was looking over there and we'd had some conversations at the time around working together and so on. But boy, I thought, what a great place to work. Lockwood, they're just smart and willing to take some smart risk and doing cool stuff and breaking new ground. So I, just as an observer, competitor, I don't think really competed, but just as someone, an observer of the business, it was uh, it was fun to watch. So, gents, this has been fabulous, and we're going to need to wind up here. We try to keep these to a half an hour. This one's going to be double that, So, but I think all, the, all worthwhile, all good. So uh, one last question. What do you guys do outside of work? Oh, that's right. I'm sorry. You guys don't. Um, what do you guys do in retirement that uh, you're excited or passionate about that people might find interesting or surprising? Jim, you want to kick it off? Sure. Thanks. Thanks, Jack. So I am doing some give back work. One of the things that I'm having some fun with is working with uh, veterans, a uh, consultant advisor to Warrior Surf Foundation. Mm -hmm. So they help uh, our vets, men and women with post-traumatic stress. And uh, part of it is surfing therapy, consulting work with them, um, yoga, which is kind of fun. So I'm sort of the money guy. We have a we have a fundraiser tonight and I'm going to go there and hopefully raise some dough. And the other thing I'm doing is helping young people start new businesses. And that's a long story, but it's a lot of fun. It's, you know, it's not particularly, 
wealth management down here. It's, you know, I'm starting a fitness. I'm leaving my, my place of business and my boyfriend and I are going to be fitness trainers. Example, a uh, young lady starting a catering business, young, young man starting a coffee shop catering business, just kind of figure out a way to scale that and uh, help more of these young people, you know, have fun and do it. You know what Len and I did, which is start something on your own. So that's what I'm doing. Having fun. That's great. Len. Yeah, I remember after I had retired, you, I said I was going on vacation and you said, how the hell do you go on a vacation when you retired? I mean, what's the difference? <laughs> I remember that stopped me in my tracks. I said, well, basically I do the same thing I do now, but in a different location was all, uh, was the difference. But the one thing, you know, when our career and you've experienced in financial services, it takes very long to build something and it's sort of intangible. I got into building stuff. I've always liked building stuff, if it's a business or not. And I have a remote property up in the Pocono Mountains. And I got into building some tables and stuff. And now I've expanded to, I bought a wood miser, chopped down 60 trees, and I'm building a log cabin on top of the mountain. Yeah, I think I watched too many of those survival shows. So, uh, you know, a lot of my free time, I do play golf. You know, one thing you also have got to do when you retire is you've got to spend a couple of years in finding out what you don't want to do. Right. Yeah. Right. And, and you go through that process. But the one thing that sticks with me is building things. That's great. I didn't know that. We talk often, but I did not know that part. That's great. Wonderful. So, gentlemen, thank you. Uh, this has been a very important walk down memory lane. Really good stuff. Thanks so much for sharing. As you are wont to do, you do that so well. So for our audience, if you've enjoyed our podcast, please rate, review, subscribe, and share what we're doing here at Wealth Tech on Deck. We're available wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you again, Len and Jim. It's been a real pleasure. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you. It's been a lot of fun. Thanks, guys. Great seeing you guys. Thanks for listening to this episode of Wealth Tech on Deck, our ongoing conversation about improving financial outcomes for all. This podcast is brought to you by LifeYield and produced by Reverb. Subscribe to future episodes in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can connect with our host, Jack Sherry, on LinkedIn and Twitter. And for more information about our perspective on the future of financial advice, visit our website at lifeyield.com.